talking and it don't make sense Tell me what it's all about The truth is stranger the closer you get To the who, what, where, when, how Absurd is the word, guess what I heard Absurd is the word, guess what I heard Guess what I heard Guess what I heard Hi, this is Know What I Heard. I'm Jamie, and this episode is all about science, so buckle up. My friend Rich, who is the coolest nerd I know, is going to explain some very, very cool advances in science and how they relate to medicine. So there's some really cool stuff if you like medicine, if you like science, if you like cool stuff, if you give a shit about anything at all then this episode is for you. So Rich gets to explain all of his fun science stuff. I'm the idiot that throughout the episode is like, oh, oh, huh, wow, that's awesome. Really? Like, that's basically my contribution to this episode. Uh, but I learned a lot. This stuff is fascinating. So let's get our nerd on, guys. So uh, my name is Rich McGee. Um, I am currently an associate scientist at a uh, institute for medical research in Kansas City. Um, in particular, the lab I work in is what's called a screening lab. So we do high throughput molecular biology. We work on a lot of different stuff, but uh, my primary specialty is I am the robotics expert in the lab. And so I program robots and programs outside of the robots that handle the data that they generate. Um, and I also develop molecular biology methods for those robots. Gotcha. Okay. Well, cool. Uh, whatever you want to do, homie. It's your show. I've done right, I've well, done a little bit of research, but I'm ready to get my fucking science on. Well, perfect. Bitch. What I wanted to start off with, though, is a uh, an anecdote. So uh, as part of my job uh, at work, we interview candidates for positions in our lab. There's one question that I have asked every single candidate, and I have noted down what they have answered. And so far, out of 10 candidates that we've interviewed for various positions... 10 out of 10 times, they've all answered the same thing to this question. And so that question is, what are you most excited about in the world of biochemistry, molecular biology, and the life sciences in general? Every single one of them has answered CRISPR-Cas9. Uh, have you heard of CRISPR-Cas9? I have. I forget which documentary it was, but I have. I, I saw just a little something about it, like all the amazing things that like they might be able to correct to get rid of, you know kind of knock out a bunch of different diseases. But, yeah, you know, absolutely. of course, it was way over my head. But I was like, that yeah. is awesome. Yeah. So that's actually the first thing that I want to talk about is CRISPR-Cas9. Okay. Um, so before I actually get into CRISPR-Cas9, I'm going to real briefly talk about DNA, RNA, and proteins. So okay. DNA, deoxyribonucleic nucleic acids, is the stuff that we write our genetic code in. And every cell in your body, uh, excluding actually red blood cells, which don't have a nucleus, every cell in your body has DNA in it. And it's 23 pairs of chromosomes. And it's just a way to organize the DNA around, right? So that's your, your genes. We write it down in DNA and we store it like that. From DNA, you have um, machinery in your cell that translates that into RNA, which is ribonucleic acid. And so RNA is a template for making proteins, and RNA can also actually be used as an enzyme itself. And so it's it, they're, they're not super common, but they're actually uh, 
really useful in some of the oldest genes that we have um, actually translate into RNA enzymes. And so the RNA, like I said, can be translated into proteins, which generally are the work workhorses of the cell. They do uh, a lot of the work of modifying molecules and stuff like that. So that brings me back to CRISPR. So CRISPR-Cas9 is a joint system. So CRISPR actually stands for, and I actually have to read this because like it's an obnoxious acronym. It is Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Sequences. And Cas9 yeah, yeah, is... Yeah, I, I, I wrote that down and I was like, what? Like when the one I saw what it actually said where I was like, uh, what now? Yeah, it's, it's slightly obnoxious. Uh, and Cas9 is CRISPR-associated protein. So, you know. Oh. <laughs> That one's actually pretty pretty straightforward. So uh, that doesn't really tell you what it does, though. So what it ends up being is CRISPR is a guide sequence that you're, that you can design to find specific sequences in DNA. And Cas9 is a essentially a molecular pair of scissors that will cut at that location, okay. right? So the reason why that's really cool is that you can design your CRISPR sequences to find a very specific piece of DNA in a living organism and cut at that location with Cas9, which okay. that's how we do molecular cloning, is we find a specific DNA sequence, we cut at that sequence, and then we clone in a piece of DNA at that gap now. Okay. So uh, what's actually really interesting about this too is this comes out of prokaryotes uh, like bacteria and archaea uh, both have uh, similar systems like this. Um, and they use it to recognize invading viruses and cut up their DNA. Mm -hmm. So if they've seen a virus before, they encode that in their CRISPR sequences. And then the next time they see that virus, they just cut up the DNA. Oh, which is super okay. Cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And the actually, the original way that we used to do cloning a lot, well, we still do actually, um, not as much anymore, but uh, restriction digest ligation cloning, that also came from prokaryotic immune systems. So mm -hmm. they recognize a specific sequence. And if it's not methylated, they cut it. So both of these come out of bacteri essentially bacterial immune systems uh, okay. is where we get our cloning techniques from today. So um, that's all cool. So why would this be important to be able to clone genes or modify genes in living DNA? And like you had already mentioned, actually, um, there are diseases that are that come from a genetic basis, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so in, in the case, there's three big ones that people talk about a lot. That's sickle cell anemia, uh, beta thalassemia, and cystic fibrosis. Okay. Um, and so if you figure out a way to do this in a living person, then we could remove the genetic disease and they would live a healthy your life. Just kind of in my research, it was, I guess, kind of like the hope is that it eventually could cure like cancers, blood disorders, blindness, AIDS, Huntington's disease, and muscular dystrophy. And I was like, damn, that would be cool, obviously. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got a lot of things that actually it could really work on, actually. And actually, the reason why I got into biochemistry is because I got really interested in HIV. Um, and so one way to treat for HIV would be like, like you had just mentioned, using CRISPR-Cas9, uh, you introduce a uh, double CCR5 deletion. Um, and CCR5 is, is, um, is one of the uh, uh, proteins that HIV uses to get into the cells. And so okay. if the host no longer has that protein, that it's actually a transmembrane protein, then the HIV just can't even get into the cells. Huh. Um, and so you actually so see natural immunity with people who have that just from birth. Okay. So when that they do that process, what does that look like for the patient? Like, how do they make those adjustments? What does that mean for them? Like, is it a transfusion? Yeah. Like, so that's that's a great question, um, and that actually does bring me to my next point as well. Oh, I'm sorry. So I'm sorry. Perfect. I'm sorry. Perfect lead. In. No, 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 no. That was a perfect Woo! lead. In. Could not have I'm engineered that better. I'm good at segways, um, you know. <laughs> 
Um, so, uh, July of 2019, Victoria Gray of Forest, Mississippi, was the first person in the U.S. to be treated with CRISPR technology to treat her sickle cell anemia. Huh. So, have you heard okay. about this? No. So she she didn't end up she she hasn't been the only person this far. I think there's been two others at least. But the reason why CRISPR hadn't been used in the past is that it's not super accurate. Um, now we're discovering better cast proteins uh, that are more accurate, so we have more on-target editing. Uh, but literally, just July of last year, um, we had our first sickle cell patient used that was treated with CRISPR. And so basically what they did was they extracted some of her bone marrow. Um, they modified that bone marrow using uh, CRISPR. They verified that the mutation that they intended um, was present in those bone marrow cells. And then they expanded them a bit, and then they reinfused them back into her body. So okay. she is still happy and healthy to this day, and more than 60% of her red blood cells are now non-sickle cell, wow. which is much better than having, you know, 100%. Or it's not always 100%. There's usually some that haven't pulled it over. That That is going to extend her life. That is right. going to make her feel healthier all the time because it's not just shortening your life. You also feel like crap a lot of the time. Yeah, So that's awesome. I mean, things are happening even if you don't see them in the news. This is the cool stuff that's happening behind the scenes that isn't always sexy, but, like, it's moving. <laughs> it's happening, you know? I think it's pretty sexy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, here is a question for you, actually. What is oh, the deadliest God. animal in the world? I don't know. The deadliest animal? The humans? That is a right? very good guess. Uh I would probably say yes. After humans, what is the deadliest animal in the world? <laughs> hmm. I don't know. It's the mosquito. Oh. Right. Yeah. So in, in certain areas, I, mosquitoes carry a parasite called malaria. Right. And so um, fun fact. And a actually, bunch of other shit. Yes. Uh, like West Nile and stuff like that. Right. Mm -hmm. um, fun fact, actually, sickle cell anemia is protective against malaria. It's actually a beneficial mutation in those areas. But, you know, now that we have modern medicine, um, you know, that kind of sucks for people who move out of those areas or who have never lived in those areas that now have sickle cell anemia. Um, but malaria kills about a half a million people a year. Wow. It's a very large number. The next closest is snakes at 50,000 people a year. And then <laughs> dogs, because of rabies, kill 25,000 people a year. Jesus. Um, crocodiles kill about 1,000 people a year. Huh. So the reason why I bring up mosquitoes, though, is that you can use CRISPR to change the dynamic which mosquitoes are currently in right now, where they carry malaria and are killing people, right? Um, so they've already tested this. They have not released them into the wild yet. There's a couple of different ways you can do it. So one that I think is really cool, because I just hate mosquitoes, like with a passion. It's one of the few things in the world where I'm just like, I don't think you have redeeming qualities. Yeah, no. <laughs> so what they've done is they've Using CRISPR, they've genetically modified mosquitoes that makes the females of the species sterile. Um, and so normally that kind of mutation would die out. But they've done this genetic modification with something called a gene drive. I won't get super into it. Um, but basically what that means is all offspring get two copies of this gene. And two copies of the gene makes all the female mosquitoes sterile, but not the males. Okay. And so what ends up happening is... No matter how much the males uh, reproduce and how many of the females die out, the males will eventually, all of the males will get these genes and all of the females will die out. Even though there will be females without the gene that are reproducing, all of their offspring will. And so all of their male offspring will go on and reproduce and drive the female of the species essentially into extinction until hmm. the population goes into extinction. Um, well, how do mosquito lovers feel about that? I have not yet met a mosquito lover. <laughs> Somewhere there's like someone with a fucking save the skeeters sign that's Absolutely. really, really pissed. But I yeah. have mosquito bites all over me. They like 
annihilate me. So I am on board with that. No, I'm hyper-reactive to mosquito bites. So mm-hmm. I am one of those people that say, you know what? I'm willing to risk ecological collapse. <laughs> <laughs> I no longer have to, like, you know, wake up when I'm camping and just be, like, itchy and, like, sore all over from mosquito right. bites. And that makes me a bad scientist, and I will admit that. <laughs> um, you know what? They're motherfuckers. So. They are. Um, so the... Uh, there's, there's a different way that you could do this um, using a uh, lentivirus carrier, um, which would introduce genes into the organism that would essentially make them no longer susceptible to carrying malaria, so they would have an immunity to it, too. So the okay. skeeters would stick around. You do it the same gene-drive thing, right? Um, you can do this with lentivirus or CRISPR. Um, the reason they went with CRISPR is because it tends to be a little more accurate and specific to what you're trying to do, but it's hard to do large populations at once. And so that's why lentivirus uh, could be used instead to make a larger population uh, of these. And so, uh, so I think that that would be a really interesting way to come about it rather than just wiping them out, which is probably my preferred method. <laughs> yeah. But uh, there are alternatives to just wiping the whole thing out. Um, and so you'd mentioned uh, also, you know, using CRISPR to cure blindness or, you know, work on other types of problems. Right. And so, the really cool thing that you can do with CRISPR or lentiviruses or adenoviruses, um, these are all different ways of just getting genes into living organisms, is you can introduce novel genes. One thing that I really, really want to volunteer for is you can use these to introduce new color cones into your eye. So right now huh. we have three color cones, right? Yeah. And using this, they've already proven that they can do this. You can introduce a new color cone into your eye to see new colors which would be things like infrared or UV, right? Or since I'm a guy and there is basically a 0% chance that I have it, introduce a yellow color cone, which some small percentages of women do have. Some of them actually do see better color distinguishing than than the rest of us. And I think women actually generally do, in general, do see better color than men. Um, Mm -hmm. Just on a, like, if you test men versus women, uh, women tend to have slightly better color vision than men do. Um, I would love to be able to see different colors and new colors, right? Like have night vision, predator. Oh my God. I would definitely volunteer for that. (laughs) (laughs) Like 100%. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. They've they've already done this actually um, with, um, I think it was squirrel monkeys, Um, but they're naturally, they're, they're naturally red green colorblind, but they introduced the genes to produce red color cones into these monkeys' eyes, and they tested them over months. And after a certain amount of testing, they were able to have them see red. And they apparently have video of the first moment that, that the monkeys see this new color. And it's just like, can you imagine the first time you've ever seen like a completely brand new color? They apparently have video <laughs> monkeys having that like realization, like, holy shit, that's a new that's color. Like, that's crazy. That? So it's like yeah. 20 years from now, like all of our Navy SEALs are going to have like built-in like infrared mm-hmm. vision. Wow, that's crazy. That's really cool. Yeah, I'm I'm super looking forward to it. I definitely am of <laughs> the crowd that will like volunteer my body for science to test out some of these things because I definitely want to be a transhuman, right? Where you're introducing new genes into humans that humans have never had before. What how we can improve the human condition in that way? Gotcha. Um, so the next field that I want to talk about is bioinformatics. When I say bioinformatics, like hazarding a guess, like what would you think that would mean? Well, funny you ask because I looked it up and <laughs> perfect. in a nutshell, I would say it's the science of collecting and analyzing complex biological data like genetic codes. Boom. I could up? not have said that better if I had not written the Wikipedia article myself, oh. which I did not. So, <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes. So in that shell, it's a very interdisciplinary field because it's computer science, biology, information engineering, mathematics and statistics, among other things. I mean, you know, like all these different fields just crammed into one. But I think it's super dope. And so like you had already mentioned, right, it's the complex interaction uh, of genes in the genome, of proteins in the proteome. That's literally a thing. And in particular, the reason I want to talk about it is how it relates to human health and disease. So we already talked a little bit about DNA, RNA, and protein, right? So Mm -hmm. one thing that you'll hear a lot is DNA is sometimes called the blueprint of the cell. Have you heard that phrase before? Yes, I have. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, it's one of those things, I'm a very particular person, that phrase always really annoys me because a blueprint is a very static thing, right? Mm-hmm. Some Somebody designs this blueprint and then it just sits there and there's you know something else that comes in and works off of those blueprints and builds something. I feel like that's a major oversimplification because the DNA is both blueprint and architect in a lot of cases. Okay. So the way I like to imagine it is imagine a building that changes its own blueprint based on interactions with its environment every second of every day. Every change okay. to the blueprint results in a change to the building, which keeps it in balance with its surrounding environment. Gotcha. Okay. That is how DNA do, <laughs> which I think is super cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So bioinformatics applies to a lot of different fields uh, because a lot of different organisms have DNA and could benefit from this kind of analysis. But the reason I would like to talk about it There was a project that I worked on recently um, where I built a high-throughput cloning pipeline. And so I'm working with robots. I'm working with offline computers. I'm working with data that comes off of other people's machines. And I want to do this in as automated a way as possible. And so from start to finish, the computer writes all the work lists. It designs the primers. It uh, runs the robots. And at the very end, it's essentially making a hit or no hit call. Uh, at the back end, which then it designs the next round of cloning for the front end of the pipeline, right? Hmm. Okay. So if I want to clone 100 genes into four different types of plasmids, that's 400 different cloning projects that I would have to do on my own. Or I teach the robots how to do it, and they do that stuff for me. And so that is very basic bioinformatics, right? That is a low level of just like, I'm using computers, and I'm analyzing the sequencing data that comes off of these things, and deciding yay or nay, essentially, at the end, right? Okay. And so I actually use this in my day-to-day work. There are higher levels of bioinformatics that apply directly to human health. So do you know who Gregor Mendel is? Yes. I mean, I know yes. the name. I can't really remember, like, what he did, but, right. you know, whatever. So he was a Catholic friar in what is now the Czech Republic. Um, and basic, basically, he hypothesized a method of genetic inheritance over 100 years before we knew what genes were. Okay. So he's he's kind of a badass in, in the science. <laughs> I mean, he just like he just came up with this. He was breeding peas, I think, was the big thing that he was doing, right? And he was like, oh, there's like this whole system by which the parents, pea plants, pass on genetics to you know their their offspring. And I, I realize this is a podcast, and I use quotey fingers on genetics there because genetics gets cool. exist. Um, but <laughs> it was it was inheritance, right? He was he was figuring out how certain types of genes were inherited at the time, over 100 years before we knew what a gene was. So bringing that back, let's well, not back, but forward into uh, our current time, right? Well, not quite current time. Do you remember when scientists first started hypothesizing that smoking might be causing cancer? No. No, I don't either. I'm trying to think like when, (laughs) like, campaigns would have started, you know, but no, when was that? So 
I think the earliest questions were happening around like the 40s, maybe even into the 30s for some quote unquote crackpot scientists at the time. Um, but it really started catching steam in the 50s and 60s. Hmm. So um, at the time, though, there was a really good question asked by people who were skeptical of this idea. Uh, that, that question was, how do we know that smoking causes cancer and not that some people have a gene that causes both cancer and a propensity to smoke? Hmm. And I know that it sounds like it's threading the needle there, but it's actually not. There are genes that cause multiple things and things that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Now, right. at the time, there wasn't a whole lot of data that had been published yet showing this strong link, uh, but it's actually not a dumb question at all. Now, the reason I brought up Mendel is Mendelian randomization is a technique that we can use nowadays to answer that question by looking at genetic data and the health outcomes of people, right? Okay. And so, again, not going to get super deep into the weeds on how it works. One, it's super complicated, and I have a very medium level of understanding on it. But basically, Mendelian randomization is a way to ask, is something caused, are, are multiple things caused by this one gene? Or is this truly something that an external factor caused this problem? Okay. Right? The way that you do that is you sequence the genetic data of a bunch of people that are in this study, and you find out what common gene variants they have between them. And if one of those gene variants comes up again and again and again, you would say, oh, this gene only comes up in our sick population. It doesn't ever come up in our healthy population. There must be a problem with this gene somehow influencing this disease, right? Right. So that's basically what Mendelian randomization is. And that is a big bioinformatic technique that we're starting to see more and more usage of nowadays, right? Gotcha. So it's kind of, I mean, maybe maybe I'm misreading this, but like, Obviously, in the case of smoking, it would be both. Smoking can cause cancer, but there it's potentially a gene that would cause it anyway. So if you have both, you're like fucked, which is <laughs> is kind of like, you know, with other things too, probably like drinking, like you might be more prone to liver cancer, but is it like the alcohol or this right. gene that you have? Okay. So yeah, but, yeah, exactly. But if you have, so, but like if if it was something you could test for, like if you, it's like if if females know that they have a gene that potentially leads to breast cancer, mm -hmm. like you can stay on top of it. Right. Like I, a I don't know. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. So Mendelian randomization is more about excluding um, a cause, right? And so, like you exactly said, though, like there are genes that could cause both, right? And so um, if you look in the population and you find one gene that leads to addiction but does not cause cancer in absence of that addictive thing, and you find another gene that pops up in cancer, those are two different genes. So you could have the addictive gene and not get the cancer, or you could have the cancer gene and not have the addiction, right. of course, or not have the propensity to addiction, I should say. These genes are very loosey-goosey in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways that they work, right? Some people are more prone to getting addicted because of certain genes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll ever start, or if they start, they won't stop. Other people don't have these genes, and they get addicted all the time. So it's about excluding the idea that one gene will rule them all, essentially. Okay. And so uh, one area that this has popped up unfortunately, recently. So this is called a causation correlation problem. Immunization does not cause autism. Like, let me be very clear. But that is an actual trend that has been found. And so the question is, is are they correlated or is the immunization somehow uh, causative of autism? Now, we already know that it's not, but using 
Mendelian randomization, you can actually answer that question really easily because you have, you know, everybody gets immunized, but not everybody gets autism, right? Well, not everybody gets immunized, but a lot of people get immunized and are diagnosed with autism. And so using Mendelian randomization, you can sequence a bunch of kids, those who have been diagnosed with autism and those who haven't, and you can find out if there is a causative gene in there somewhere that is related. They've done that, there isn't. And so immunization okay. is not the problem. There are genes associated with being diagnosed with autism. They've done twin studies, and uh, it is somewhat inheritable from your parents. Um, and so we know that there is a genetic link. We just don't know exactly what the causative factor is yet. And it probably won't be one. There'll probably be, well, we already know that there are multiple genes associated with it. And so it's never going to be one of those ones like sickle cell that's one gene, one disease, or one diagnosis in this case. So Mendelian randomization has already shown that it's not really an issue when it comes to immunization. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing that uh, Mendelian randomization can be used for is to determine what chemotherapies can be effective for what type of cancers. And okay. that's one that I'm really excited about. Yeah. Because amazing. the way that the way that we we treat cancers right now is we, we, we try to define a cancer as accurately as possible based on morphology, based on how the cell looks, essentially, where it is, um, other factors that are associated with it. And then there are like top line treatments that we start with. And if that doesn't work, then we go to the next line treatment, right? And we kind of work our way down. What we found out is that not every cancer that looks exactly like this has the same mutations. And so if we start sequencing, and we, we have been doing this a lot, actually, we start sequencing these tumors, we find out exactly what their uh, genetic variation is. And then we look at the treatments and the outcomes, then we can bring that data back to the front end. And using bioinformatics, we can crunch through this data and say, okay, what chemotherapies were most effective? And would it help to add in this second chemotherapy, which is called adjuvant therapy, or the second drug maybe that isn't even a chemotherapy. It's just something else that may support killing the cancer. Um, right. This is going to help a lot. And there's already been some trials uh, particularly in regards to the most common breast cancers and prostate cancers that have already started to look at how to apply this. Um, but I think this is going to be a huge game changer uh, yeah. in cancer treatments. That's awesome. So it kind of helps too, because I, I think, you know, some of what I was reading about all this is that like a lot of diseases are just kind of treated the same across the board for everybody. And it's not necessarily like, an individualized treatment for that person, which mm -hmm. is why some chemo works for some people and not others, that it's like creating this more of like a, here's what would work best for you specifically versus like, here's how we treat breast cancer. Right. You know what I mean? Which I and, think is and, and oncologists, cool. Yeah. And oncologists do try to get as specific as possible to cancer. But if you don't know what the variants are, what, what genes have been impacted, it's really hard to just look at a cell. I mean, and I mean, there, there's, it's a very complicated science to figure out exactly what kind of cancer you have just by looking at it. But I mean, that's kind of what you're doing. That isn't going to be, that's never going to be as accurate as knowing exactly what the genetic modifications are that cause it to be cancerous. Right. And so being able to personalize medicine, that is a hint to one of the other topics we're going to talk about. Uh, <laughs> I think it's going to be a huge thing. Sorry if I'm stepping on your toes. No, absolutely not. I love that you're kind of leading in. And I will start this next section by asking you a quick question. When was the last time you remember hearing about stem cells in the news? Oh, gosh. Specifically, I don't know, but it's been a while. I'm going Pre to guess it was two presidents ago during the Bush era. Has it really? Pretty much, yeah. Um, so the last time I remember hearing about it was on the news, at least, was the kerfuffle of our fetal stem cells, right? Where right. 
news anchors at CNN and Fox News were screaming at people and generally not understanding science at all. But um, that was more about the morality of using fetal stem cells. And so since then, we figured out how to make stem cells from normal adult human tissue, which is super cool. <laughs> and so this technology is called induced pluripotent stem cells, um, or iPSCs. Um, and so this was discovered by Dr. Yamanaka in 2006, for which he won a Nobel Prize in 2012, which is a very short turnaround for Nobel Prizes nowadays. The average turnaround on Nobel Prizes is about 20 years from start to finish. Uh, that was six years. And so that's yeah. really short. So the reason why I think this is really cool, and particularly in terms of human medicine, is they can actually be used in a number of different ways. So one of the ways in which you can use it is you can use it to model human diseases in animals. And we already do that, um, but animal models tend to not replicate super well in humans, at least most of the time, right? Because if you have a rat with a rat liver and you're modeling a human disease in that rat liver and then you're using drugs, which the rat body may process differently, that may not come out with the same result in humans, right? Right. Right. Animal models probably aren't the best method for modeling human diseases all the time. However, what you can now do is you can get a cell sample from a human. You can induce them to become pluripotent stem cells. You can then encourage them to grow into a liver-like mass, implant that into the rat, and then model the disease. And so what you actually have is, quote-unquote, a human liver in a rat uh, that you can then model diseases against, right? Huh. Which is going okay. to be a lot more accurate than a rat liver. <laughs> and so I think that's going to be a big deal in and of itself. But that's not the only way that we can use iPSCs. They have been, not in humans yet, as far as I know, but they have been used to regrow nerves, uh, which nerves are really finicky to get to regrow. Most of the time when somebody has a spinal injury, that's it, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're not, right, yeah. they're not going to get that, that, that feeling back, that control back. The proprioception is just gone. I mean, if that uh, if the spinal cord is severed at that point, that's pretty much it. Right. IPSCs have been used to regrow uh, nerves in other animals at this point. And so people who have had these accidents, we can regrow those nerves, which is super wow. cool. Right. Um, awesome. So use them to regrow new organs. So I think this is just super cool in and of itself. If you take a cell sample from the patient who has a, for example, a bump liver, right? You induce pluripotent stem cells. You take those stem cells, you, you cause them to differentiate into, and it's slightly complicated, but you basically cause them to grow into a new organ of the specific organ that you want, whether that's a heart or a liver or a kidney or whatever. And then you take that new organ and you transplant it back into the patient. Wow. You become your own organ donor. That's amazing. And that is super cool. That's called an autologous uh, organ transplant, literally mm -hmm. to yourself transplant. I think most people would understand like how big of a deal that would be because right now there are people on what are called organ waiting lists. And that sounds so dystopian that you're just literally waiting until you die or get an organ transplant. Like this is the list that you're on. Right. Do you happen to know, like just out of curiosity, like how long it would take to grow the organ? Because I know the waiting list for an outside donor is very long, but like how long does it take to grow a liver? Um, so the last big organ that I'm aware of, they were basically using a scaffolding method, which is where they take a pig heart um, and they strip it of basically all of the actual cells and leave just behind the cartilage. Um, and then they use that as a quote unquote scaffold to grow the new human heart on. Um, when they did that, I believe it was 
I may be wrong, I believe it was four weeks from have a stripped scaffolding to you've got a heart that could be transplanted. Now, they didn't transplant those hearts into humans. There's a lot more research that needs to go into it. But, yeah, basically a month. Wow. And that'll probably speed up a little bit. That's amazing. Yeah. And so, um, and I said there's a lot more research that needs to be done. There is more research. I am estimating in the next five years, we'll see our first autologous human organ transplant. So in about five years, donating organs will not be a thing. And so uh, just to put that in perspective, uh, in the U.S., 20 people die every day from a lack of organs available for transplant. Wow. Well, I mean, there's always the issue, too, with an outside donor that, you you know, your body might reject it. So if that eliminates that Mm -hmm. that's that's incredible (laughs) no that is that is an excellent point right like my my father-in-law will have to take uh these these immune suppressants the rest of his life because he got a cornea well two cornea transplants right Mm -hmm. um and 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 if he ever stops taking them his body will reject those corneas right yeah his eyes will just be like nope and so having something that your immune system doesn't react to is super awesome Mm -hmm. um and actually even going just one step further Think about diabetes, type 1 diabetes in particular, right? It's an autoimmune disease. The body is attacking its own beta cells in, in, in the pancreas, right? right? And so when when it does that, it, it destroys the cells that create most of the insulin in the body, and which is why they need to take uh, exogenous insulin. So with iPSCs, what you can do once we get this technology perfected is you can modify, you can take a sample from the patient, can modify it such that they no longer have that antigen that their body is recognizing as foreign, grow a new pancreas, transplant that into the diabetic patient. Theoretically, they will no longer be diabetic because they have a perfectly functioning pancreas that their immune system does not recognize as foreign. Wow. Yeah. And that's using CRISPR, of all things. <laughs> yeah, that's so, pretty. I mean, that's just amazing. Yeah, tying it back together. I mean, all these technologies, little by little, they're not always useful just on their own, right? It's it's, mm-hmm. it's about working towards a whole system in which we can begin to tackle these massive diseases that are causing so much pain, so much hurt, so much death, right? Yeah, yeah. And I had another list, like with this, with stem cell research, kind of what I guess the areas of research right now are, um, as far as like diseases that they're help are hoping to eliminate at some point. Point, uh, was Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. rheumatoid arthritis, MS, which my mom has. So yes, that would be amazing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, lupus, kidney and liver disease, stroke and heart conditions. So I mean, just, it's just fascinating. Like that's yeah. so much. That's just incredible. Right. And, and the fact that you can take them from the patient themselves, right? Because we've done stem cell stuff from, you know, donations from other people, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, and, and those have been somewhat effective. But like you already mentioned, you know, the immune system tends to recognize those things as foreign because they're somebody else's. And right. so um, being able to get it from the patient themselves is going to be a huge win. Um, and so just as a perspective, diabetes as a whole is the seventh leading cause of death in the U.S. Wow. Seventh leading cause. Uh, it costs yearly an estimated $245 billion. And again, for perspective, that's one in every 10 healthcare dollars spent just on diabetes. And to be clear, not all of those are type one, but these are the kinds of things that like, yeah, it may cost 
twenty thousand dollars to you know get somebody a new pancreas from their own cells right mm-hmm. that is no longer recognized by their immune system as foreign but once they have that they are at reduced risk for stroke they're at reduced risk for heart disease they're at reduced risk for obesity they're at reduced risk for all of these different diseases cancer incidence is increased when you're diabetic because insulin is a growth factor right iga right growth factor, right? These things all interconnect. And when you start to target things at the root, rather than just treating on the back end, it starts to save people's lives sooner. And, you know, because this is America, and we're capitalists, it also saves money. (laughs) And well, and and doesn't this also help kind of eliminate that like ethical issue? Like a lot of people are against stem cell research, because early on, it did come from another donor, that if it comes from that person, that kind of eliminates that ethical bullshit that stops the progression of stopping these diseases, which is amazing because that can stop funding, you know, from more conservative companies or whatever that it's, it's awesome that it kind of opens that door for everybody to get on board with it. You're 100% correct. I mean, my, my company has essentially, it's not a license, but like has permission from the state to do stem cell research with various sources of stem cells. And there were protests outside of my building when when this was originally an issue where people were very upset about it and it's not really a thing anymore right when was the last time you heard about it yeah. the bush administration right yeah <laughs> it was yeah. a while ago and so you know we still have that that permission to do that but the state that we live in missouri was one of those states that was you know passing legislation to ban research using the you know fetal stem cells and stuff like that that's really not a thing anymore we technically yeah. still have permission to do that research, but everybody uses iPSCs nowadays. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I'm sure there are people who still do research with fetal stem cells, and it's probably very necessary for whatever reason, but it's really not an issue anymore. Yeah. So you're right. It is does remove that. Well, it's like it doesn't – when Biden and Trump start to debate, like that's not going to be an issue that comes up, <laughs> you know, where before it was a very liberal, conservative issue. And right. So it's nice to just go ahead and just cut that right out. Yeah. Now they now they can debate about the important things, like who can drink a glass of water. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, uh, God. Yeah, not looking forward to the entire campaign. It's fine. Okay, doke. So the next thing that I want to talk about is precision medicine, which you had already mentioned, basically. Oh. <laughs> and Sorry. so um, I will start this out with a question and just throw out a guess. I would not have been able to guess this. And I work at an institute for medical research specifically that was started because of cancer. So as of 2019, as of last year, how many cancer genes have been identified? And I will just say this. There are 20 to 25,000 genes in humans. Zero. <laughs> that is a guess for sure. Yeah, I don't know. I'm assuming not many, but I don't know. 2,372. Wow. Yes. So when people say, I have cancer, the next question is not, oh, where is it? It is exactly what kind of cancer is it, right? Because breast cancer is not breast cancer is not breast cancer. There are many different types of prostate cancer. There are many different types of colon cancer. Um, Some of them look very similar to each other, like we talked about earlier. So this is something we already talked about. How do you know what treatment to use? We kind of don't at this point, right? We look at 
what it looks like under a microscope. We look at how it's interacting uh, with the cells around it. We know where it is, right? Because we got it from, you know, the colon or we got it from the stomach. That's not a really good way to determine what kind of medicine to use, right? Mm-hmm. If if I said you have a bacterial infection in your lungs, apropos of nothing like COVID, and somebody said, oh, well, what does it look like? Well, it looks like bacteria. Okay, uh, cool. <laughs> that doesn't really help, right? So, I mean, COVID is, is coronavirus. It's a virus, not a bacteria. But you get my point. When you have a bacterial infection, they don't just say, oh, it's shaped like a rod. Therefore, we will use these antibacterials, right? We don't right. use these. Right. Okay. We don't guess. We figure out exactly what kind of bacteria it is. And then we say, ooh, amoxicillin works for you. Ooh, uh, we're going to use this other one. Right. Right. Um, That's kind of hard to do with cancer, except now it's less hard because we can sequence the genes of your particular cancer. And so the reason why I think precision medicine is going to be a big deal isn't yet. And I will admit there's been a couple of false starts in it. When you have two people with the same type of cancer, they're not going to take the same treatment. Not always. They might just so happen to need the same treatment, but in a lot of cases they don't. Um, And so what we're looking to do essentially with precision medicine is figure out exactly what the problem is and from that know exactly what treatment to give you. Okay. And so after sequencing whatever it is that you have, whether that's a viral infection or a bacterial infection or cancer or heart disease, we can tailor what medicines to give you. And yeah, I mean, I mean, this is going to be a huge deal. And this actually also ties into bioinformatics. So pop quiz, what is the number one killer of Americans? Well, right now, COVID. <laughs> it's getting up there. It's actually not there quite yet, but it is getting up there. Um, is it heart disease? Heart disease. 100% correct. Boom. boom. Boom, boom. Cardiovascular disease. It accounts for approximately 32% of deaths worldwide. Wow. So if we could find out exactly who needs help and what help to give them, that would be a big deal, right? Yes. So what's the most effective form of treatment for heart disease outside of diet and exercise? Um, it's statins like Lipitor, right? Okay, um, yes. For, for, for certain types of cardiovascular disease, it's unreasonably effective. For most okay. types of cardiovascular disease, it's not. So, you know, it works really well and it has very few side effects and it seems to increase lifespan of the people who take it, uh, but not all people. So um, since we don't know which patients are going to respond to heart disease, we just give it to all of them at this point, right? If you've got high blood pressure, if you've got a bad LDL, it's um, we use that. It turns out it's probably not just LDL writ large that's the problem. It's probably more has to do with um, different proteins called apolipoproteins. And we now are testing for those. Um, so that's cool and all, but we're still not exactly sure what the exact causes of heart disease are because we have done very few large cohort studies on heart disease and heart disease takes a long time to kill you. Well, some of those studies have been done and we're doing more right now. And what we've already figured out is that there are some patients with cardiovascular disease that have a modification of a gene called PKSC9. And those patients don't normally respond to Lipitor very well. They just have cardiovascular disease and nothing seems to help. Except now that we know about their problems with PKSC9, we can prescribe them what are called PKSC9 inhibitors. Okay. That's something that we're already doing, actually. Mm-hmm. We're already looking at people who are not responding to treatment. We're sequencing their particularly this gene. There's, I think, a subset of genes that they sequence, but this is mainly the one that they're looking at. And if they have this variant, then they prescribe them the right drug. And we huh. see their, their their levels improve in big ways. Okay. So we're actually already doing this to a certain extent. Now, it's going to be a while before we figure out exactly what the benefit of that is in this particular case. But I think overall, the more people we can sequence and tailor treatments to, the yeah. better these treatments are going to seem. Right. Right. Huh. 
That's yeah. pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's already happening. This is the stuff that like is not sexy, does not get on the news, but <laughs> we are already sequencing people to determine if they would be a candidate for PPS C9 inhibitors, hmm. and that's pretty dope. Yeah, that's yeah. real dope. Mm-hmm. So, ready for the next section? Yeah, totes. Okay. The next thing I want to talk about uh, relates back to stuff that we've already talked about. So trying to build on things here. Um, We've already talked about DNA as kind of both architect and blueprint. But Mm -hmm. how does it accomplish that given that your DNA that you were born with generally is the DNA that you die with? Right? You do accrue some mutations. That's why cancer happens. But generally, the DNA you start with is the DNA that you end with. How exactly is it changing itself such that it's responding to its environment in real time, right? Okay. How it does that is through something called epigenetics. Okay. And if we translate that literally, it means on top of the gene. Okay. So it's not modifying the underlying DNA sequence. What it's doing is it's essentially tagging uh, the DNA at certain points uh, with things outside of the sequence. So these okay. very small molecules that it tags on the outside of the DNA or on top of in this case, right? Epigenetics is the study of modifications to the spatial and temporal structure of the gene, such that the expression of the gene is modulated. And we've already put people to sleep, and they hope they are not driving while listening to this. <laughs> nah. So to put that in different terms, think about like a scroll like you'd see in like a TV show set in medieval Europe where they, they pull it open, right? And they're like, here you, here mm-hmm. you. So in order to read the contents of the scroll, you have to unroll it, right? That's kind of somewhat what epigenetics does, is it okay. modifies the genes to make some of them easier to read or some of them harder to read. Okay. Because the length of your DNA in each cell is about five feet. And given how tiny that is, that is a lot of DNA to pack into one cell. And so it has to be compactified to all fit in the cell. And also, you don't always need all of it available at one time, right? Yeah, because one thing that I read was that it, in, like, dumbed-down Jamie Ch- terms it's like it it affects how like cells read the genes that it's kind of like an on-off switch that right. it determines so i was like okay yeah I get it. And i mean there there's literal on-off switches in epigenetics and there's also dimmer switches in epigenetics <laughs> where you can slightly increase or greatly increase the transcription of a gene or decrease it or just wow. knock it completely out right and so it's it's one of those things that's super cool and we did not know a lot about it i mean i I think the original epigenetic uh, structure was discovered, I think, in the 80s. Don't quote me on that. I mean, we already did. But, I mean, really, the impact that epigenetics had on an organism were not well understood until late 90s, early 2000s. And even since then, the pace of the field has been increasing a lot. So some of the modifications are temporary. And I mean, second to second, they can change. Things in the cell move extremely fast. And so some of these things it needs to respond to super quickly. And so it'll be tagging and untagging genes really quickly, second to second, right? Some of them are longer term things where things that happen in your environment over a longer period of time, like what is your diet like or how often do you exercise? Epigenetic factors can be influenced over the long term on that. And those tend to be more sticky. Some epigenetic factors can actually be passed down onto your kids. And so we are talking epigenetics goes anywhere from the second time scale all the way to generational timescales, right? Wow. And so, I mean, with anything in science, we're not exactly sure exactly how it all works yet, but um, it's becoming a very big field of interest. Um, And some of this actually does get back into precision medicine, where epigenetics can influence what drugs will be more effective on you, which is plain cool, right? Like, this stuff ties together in some way or another. 
Yeah. Um, so we've already kind of talked about cancer. We've already talked about genetic diseases. One thing that I think is really special about it that I find really interesting is how it plays into aging. And so when your cells age, that doesn't necessarily mean that you age. I think the average blood cell lives for something like 90 days. It's just cruising around your bloodstream for about 90 days. Maybe it's 45, something like that, um, before it is cleaned up by your body. Other cells live a lot shorter time. Other cells like bone cells live for a super long time. So how does aging happen to your body given that you're constantly turning over all these different cell types? And what we know right now is that epigenetics plays a huge factor in that, a massive factor. So if we know that it's causing the problems of aging, can we change that? The answer is yes. Which is <laughs> super cool. But what does that mean exactly? What that would mean is that rather than, you know, some people get to 50 and they've obviously aged a lot more than other people. So they may not live as long as other people. Uh, if you could do something to change the epigenetics in certain cell types that they have, or maybe a lot of them, um, you may be able to stop or reverse some of that aging process. <laughs> so you've, you've seen, uh, have you heard of the... Um, uh, centenarian uh, Olympics. Yes. Right. So, like, literally, 100 old people doing it's something like a 200 meter dash, right. and it takes them about five years to complete it. <laughs> so, but it's so precious. Right. Hundred year old cutest goddamn thing running 200 meters, and there are 60 year old people that can't do that. Right. right. I mean, there are 60 year old people that just age so much faster than everybody else. We have now figured out that there are certain epigenetic problems that those 60 year old people who are already having diseases of aging. Versus the centenarians who are not. And so this research has already been done. Now, caveat, it's been done in mice and rats. And like we've said before, mice models and rat models can be problematic for human health. But Dr. Belmonte at the Salk Institute, he was able to genetically engineer mice such that he could reset their epigenetic clock when they were given an antibiotic. It's not important that it was an antibiotic. It's just something that is not naturally present in mice. And it was, I think, with doxycycline. Um, and so they could use other antibiotics if they had other you know, a bacteria infection or something like that, right? But yeah, they were able to induce a reset of the epigenetic aging of these mice. And when they did that, the important thing is, is did they live longer and they did, did they live healthier? And the answer to that was yes and yes. They lived about 30% longer. And during that time, they did not look as aged as the cohorts that did not have this intervention. Wow. So we're not going to be just like Benjamin buttoning and everybody's like, I'm 60, but I look 25. Nothing like oh, that. My, my main goal is to be 160 and Ooh. look about 32. Nice. Okay. That is, a, okay. that is a bold move to say that I am as old as I want to look right now, given that I have a lot of gray hairs. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that, that as time goes on, we will find better and better ways to deal with this. And we will be able to give people the option, should they want it, hey, you don't need to age into a wheelchair and then live in a retirement community for 10 years. Hmm. You can take the option to reduce your epigenetic age and live healthier and continue doing what you want to do rather than just slowly decaying in your own body. Huh. And these mice, these mice still died. They, they right. did, did not live forever. I would love to live forever. And I know that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. <laughs> well, I have gray hairs and I'm broken out. So I just really want my body to figure out what the fuck it's doing. Which end it's going to be on. <laughs> yeah. Like, let's figure this shit out. Am I 17 or 55? Like, let's, let's get it together. <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah, so that's that's uh, that's what I wanted to talk about with epigenetics. That's pretty cool. It's super cool. It's one of those things that's just like there's not a whole lot to talk about because like the research is early stage, but it's fucking happening and it's so cool. Yeah. And that it's going to have a very positive impact, and there's going to be debate about it. I'm not I'm not trying to say that only I know what's right on this, and you know, but I'm just giving my opinion. But I, I think it's going to be very good for our society to no longer have people just decay away when they still have a lot more to offer right. should they want to, right? And they don't yeah. need to. Maybe they just maybe they just want to fucking go skiing in the Alps because they're retired and they made their money and they deserve to have that retirement. So what are the things that you would most like to see happen? Are there any things that you specifically hope to work on at some point? Um, that is a great question. Um, in general, I would love to see autologous organ transplantation. I think that's a big deal. Um, I would like to see everybody's cancer cells sequenced. You know, we've, we've talked about that previously, but like we are leaving a lot on the table by not sequencing everybody's cancer. It's super cheap. And you don't, you don't, for most cancers, we know exactly what genes are the problem. So you don't even have to do an entire genome, uh, sequencing, right? Um, you only need to sequence these five to 10 genes. And so if, it was available, I'll talk specifically about the U.S., but if there were a service operated by the U.S. government that took any, any person who got a cancer biopsy in the U.S. was also sent to the service where it was sequenced, and then you tracked that data, the, both the sequencing data and the outcome data for the patients from start to finish, I think we would cure a lot more cancers than we do now. Because people's survivability for stage four cancers is fucking garbage at this point. Right. It has not improved as much as we would have liked it to. Now, we catch certain cancers earlier, and that is great. That's all in screening, though. That's not, that has nothing to do with actually treating better. It means we just caught it sooner. Right. And that doesn't work for all cancers. Yeah. And some cancers, I mean, you catch it early, and it doesn't matter. I mean, it, it wasn't a cancer that was going to be a problem anyways. I mean, there is a problem with overdiagnosing certain cancers as well. I know that sounds silly, but it's a true fact that a lot of a lot of breast cancers will never be a problem. They'll just be, right. you know, this, this lump of cells that doesn't really do anything. You know, the estimates are that once you hit 40, you're walking around with approximately 20 different cancers in your body. All 20 of them are pretty much benign. <laughs> right. So if you caught them, it doesn't matter because they're benign cancers. Um, but I would love to see a national service that sequenced every single tumor biopsy that we took. And then we could better understand what treatments are effective because it's so cheap at this point. It, it's one of those things that like we could do so much good if we had that but we don't. So we aren't. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, and just to be able to like take that information and create databases to see like cancers that are common just demographically and things like that, that would be phenomenal. Yeah. So. And another big thing that's probably going to be coming up in the next five to 10 years is something called a liquid biopsy, where rather than taking a um, punch out of a, a tumor, you essentially take a blood sample and you can look at the genome or you can look at the RNA that's being expressed. Um, you purify it down to where it's just RNA or just DNA or whatever. Um, and without knowing if you have a cancer or where it might be, you can say that person has a cancer of this type. And so it's probably going to be in the lungs or it's probably going to be in the bone or whatever. Um, so liquid biopsies are going to be a great screening tool. I think initially we're going to catch a lot of benign stuff. It's not going to be a big deal and we're going to overtreat, and that's unfortunate. But once we better understand which ones are going to be a problem, liquid biopsies are going to be a really cool thing because, you know, you're supposed to go to your doctor once a year, right? Take a blood sample. 
do a liquid biopsy, sequence that shit, find out are there cancers that we should worry about somewhere in your body just by looking at a blood sample. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Because like right now, short of having a PET scan every year, like right. usually it's once you're, you know, the cancer is so progressed that you show any symptoms. And a lot of times at that point, it's too late. So that would be pretty phenomenal to be able to yeah. do that. So awesome. So, so yeah, I think that's going to be super useful as well. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So, all right. You got anything else? Uh, I think that's probably it. Okay. Cool. cool. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank thank you very much for doing this. Yeah, I appreciate I'm it. Really, really glad that you had me uh, come on to talk about it because I'm a nerd and I love talking about this stuff. Well, I'm dumb. So. <laughs> hard, hard disagree on that one. But no, I learned a lot. I think this stuff is fascinating. Like the science of it is a little over my head, but like the overall like picture, I'm like, fuck, that's awesome. So yeah. it's very cool. It's happening right now. Yeah, it's happening right now, and it's it's coming very quickly, and this stuff is happening. And it's going to help a lot of people. So Yeah, which is amazing. So yeah. thank you for explaining it. I appreciate it. And I miss you. Miss you too, Jamie. Fucking COVID. <laughs> yeah. Rich, thank you so much for joining me and explaining all that stuff. I'm really excited to see what the future holds as far as all these advancements in the science and in the medical field. Uh, this stuff is absolutely fascinating. This is my weekly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. Also check out the Facebook page at Know What I Heard Podcast. There's lots of really cool stuff coming up. Tell your friends. And uh, hey, until next time, Know What I Heard.